There'd been back and forth opposition as well as support for the anti-slavery cause. And John Woolman went there, resolved to see that issue to the end. Welcome to the Renovare podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is my friend and father, Richard Foster. In the 1700s, there was a white American Quaker who kept a meticulous journal as he tirelessly preached for the abolition of slavery. And the voices throughout history who've advocated for what is right and good remain extremely relevant today, as much evil still abounds. Now, the journal of John Woolman offers a unique and helpful glimpse into the spiritual process that compelled him in his work. I've heard about John Woolman my entire life, as his life and work deeply shaped my father at a young age. When I heard we were going to be reading John Woolman's journal for the Renovari Book Club, I was eager to sit down with my dad and learn a little more about how formational this book was for him in his college years. I spoke with Richard from his home in Colorado. I have a fun John Woolman fact for you. Oh, Are you ready? I'd like to hear it. I bet you don't know this one. Probably not. There's a lot I don't know. (laughs) Well, remember the poet Wordsworth? Yeah. Who said? It was the best American biography. Oh, okay. Okay. He, he put it up there with Walden and um, Ben Franklin's. He said wow. he read it twice. The only American book he read twice. That's what it was. Oh, yeah. I do remember that quote. Let me give you a quote from Charles Lamb, who said... I don't know who Charles Lamb is. Oh, uh, he was a British Shepherd? writer. No. He was, a shepherd. <laughs> he was an essayist, and he said, get the words of woman by heart, something like that. Mm, it's a big book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, okay, you knew mine. I got one more for you. This oh, one, you, right. won't, you won't know this one. Okay. John Woman's Journal, published in 1774. Right. It is the... Next to the Bible, it is the longest published book in the history of North America. I have heard that. Ah, I dang it. <laughs> but uh, did you know that it was published two years after woman's death? I did know that. Yeah. Uh, see? See, you know everything. So w- Wikipedia, man, makes me sound oh, smart. All right. <laughs> Well, okay. I thought I was going to impress you. You did good. You did good. Those are quotes. I I couldn't have given those to you, but I recognize them when you say them. Okay. This, this, I've heard you talk about this book for years and years. (laughs) How did you discover Woman's Journal? I came across Woman's Journal when I was a college student, I think, but I never took, it was never in a course. It was never required. I just picked it up and I don't know, it uh, spoke to me. So, but I never, as far as I know, read it through 
just sit down and read it all the way through. I'd read and then this a passage would speak, you know, and I would just sit with it for maybe a, quite a long while. And, uh, and then I'd go to, you know, pick up and read another passage. And I don't know, that's how that's how woman crept into my soul. It's a great way to read a book. Yeah, especially this kind of book. You know, I mean, it's a journal and he's recording. I mean, it's 18th century language, so you have to be a little patient with it. But look, here's a here's a passage. He says, I spent first day, that means Sunday, first day afternoon, chiefly in reading the scriptures and other good books, and was early convinced in my mind, now catch this, that true religion consisted in an inward life wherein the heart doth love God, love and reverence God, the Creator, and learns to exercise true justice and goodness, not only towards all men, he means all people, but also towards the brute creatures, that is, the animals. And uh, so he loved that. Uh, someone once asked, invited him over for a chicken dinner, and he said, so I can eat my neighbor? <laughs> That's when he became a vegetarian. <laughs> Probably Fun. not real common. No, not back then. Yeah. So, interesting. We learn to love God as unseen, and at the same time, we exercise cruelty toward the least creature moving by his life or by life derived from him. Was a contradiction in itself. I found no narrowness respecting sex and opinions, but believed that sincere, upright hearted people in every society who truly love God, are accepted of him. I mean, that's in a day when they killed people for having the wrong view of this and that. Yeah. What was it that caught your attention as a college student reading Woman's Journal? For years, this one experience that he had, he was 23 years old, and he says, uh, I went to meetings. He meant church meetings. I went to meetings in an awful frame of mind. Awful meaning. It's in bad mood? No, not awful, awful, but in a reverent, a oh. sense of, of God frame of mind. Awe filled. Yeah, awe filled, filled yeah. with awe. Ah, very good. And endeavored to be inwardly acquainted with the language of the true shepherd. I love that kind of language he uses. One day, being under a strong exercise of spirit, I stood up and said some words in a meeting. But not keeping close to the divine opening, I said more than was required of me. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> being soon sensible of my error, I was afflicted in mind some weeks without any light or comfort, even to that degree that I could not take satisfaction in anything. So he spoke a little bit in a meeting, but said more than he felt he should say. And so then for weeks, he's in this awful degree. I remember God 
and was troubled in the depths of my distress, he had pity on me and sent the comforter. I then felt forgiveness for my offense. Could you imagine today people feeling offended that they'd said more than that they should have said? My hmm. mind being calm and quiet, I was truly thankful to my gracious Redeemer for his mercies. About six weeks after this, so six weeks later, feeling the spring of divine love opened and a concern to speak, I said a few words in a meeting in which I found peace. Thus, now here's the lesson that he learned from it. The, being thus humbled and disciplined under the cross, my understanding became more strengthened to distinguish the pure spirit which inwardly moves upon the heart and which taught me to wait in silence sometimes many weeks together and I, until I felt that rise which prepares the creature to stand like a trumpet through which the Lord speaks to his flock. <laughs> I mean, just his sensibility that he had said more than he should have said, that sort of inward repentance, maybe a little too much, but then comfort, and, and then learning from that to distinguish the true spirit that God's speaking to him uh, from just ordinary thoughts that you have in which the creature is able to stand like a trumpet through which the Lord speaks to his flock. <laughs> I have, I've lived with that for a long, long time, you know, just trying to learn from that how to live. Uh, it's just that kind of experience. Uh, the first experience he had of, uh, uh, about slavery was a great experience. Uh, shall I read a passage? Sure. <laughs> uh, this is kind of a long path. I can tell you it. A guy got injured and asked woman to write his will. He did that kind of stuff. He, he was a, a tailor. He was a shopkeeper. He had uh, crops, uh, fruit trees, and he uh, worked as a low-level uh, notary that, or legal yeah, or something? Yeah, mm -hmm. a legal guy that could write a will for somebody, a lawyer-type person. So this guy got injured and asked him to write his will. And I took notes, and among other things, he told me to which of his children he gave his young Negro. I considered the pain and distress he was in and knew not how it would end. He didn't know if the guy would die. So I wrote his will, save only that part concerning his slave, and carrying it to his bedside, read it to him. I then told him in a friendly way that I could not write any instruments by which my fellow creatures were made slaves without bringing trouble on my own mind. I let him know that I charged nothing for what I had done and desired to be excused from doing the other part in the way he proposed. We then had a serious conference on the subject. At length, he agreed to set her free, and I finished his will. <laughs> Isn't nice. that a great story? Yeah. And that's sort of one of the first places where we begin to see his, uh, his concern about slavery. I find it 
helpful that, you know, he had these experiences of being really thoughtful about his words and actions and then, you know, ended up traveling through the South, right? right? Preaching for people to knock it off, right? (laughs) Free their slaves and had a profound impact, but I, I mean, good grief. What a boldness. I know know. what a boldness. Although here's the interesting thing. Uh, I mean, there were people before Woolman that were concerned about this, especially in the Quaker orbit, like a Benjamin Lay, who was just this radical guy that did all kinds of things that offended people like crazy. Is that the guy with the sword in yeah. the Bible thing? Yeah. yeah. You'll, maybe you can tell that story in a minute, but please go ahead. Uh, anyway, and then there were people after Woolman, like Anthony Bonet, who was a French, uh, a guy that appealed especially to state people, state governments, and so forth to abolish slavery. But Woolman, in the middle of this, in, in the, remember, he's 18th century, uh, 1720 to 1772. And uh, so solid uh, 18th century. He brings a kind of gentleness. Like when he goes to the South, this one experience I remember where uh, he speaks in a church and then goes to his host. I think this was in North Carolina and has a meal, and in the process of that, inquires about those who were serving, their status, learns that they are slaves. So then he is afflicted in his mind about this, but doesn't want to offend his host, very interestingly, but stays in a lot of concern about what had happened, that the slaves had served him this meal. So he waits until everybody's asleep, gets up in the middle of the night, goes to the slave quarters, thanks them for what they've done, paid them for, you know, serving him, and writes a note to his host that he doesn't feel clear to stay, and leaves. He just leaves. And the next morning, when his host learns what has happened. He is so moved that he frees all of his slaves, makes his wife furious because it was a huge financial thing to them. But that was how woman, that kind of tenderness of spirit, rather than, you know, just laying it on people, he, he gently, you know, pricks their conscience. Seems to be a place for for all in a, in a sense, right? Yeah. That yeah. Some people, yeah. right. Sometimes very appropriate to. Right. Screaming, you know, and, and then others. To, and, but know. I always found him an extremely, uh, came at just the right time when you'd had people like Benjamin Lay and the, I can tell the story you're referring to was, uh, he was a hunchback and, you know, he was, just kind of rascally. Uh, One prank that he pulled was he took a Bible and he hollowed it out and put a bladder of pokeberry juice, a red berry juice inside, put on a military uniform and went to the yearly meeting sessions, which is a large gathering of of, uh, that area, 
and they were debating the slave question. He knew that. And he put, oh, he put over a Quaker gray coat. Maybe now explain why the military uniform. Well, that was anathema to Quakers. And big sword, military garb. Pacifism. Yeah, the, is the pas pacifist. So he listens to all this. And then he stands up and says, you pretend that you care about your slaves. Well, you need to throw off your hypocrisy like I do this overcoat. And he throws it off. And here's this military uniform. And everybody gasped. And he says, you are piercing the hearts of your slaves. As I do this Bible, he pulls out the sword and rams it through the Bible. When he pulls it out, of course, the pokeberry juice, he's punctured, and he sprinkles the blood all over the people. And uh, <laughs> that was enough to get him kicked out of the meeting. <laughs> so yeah. that was Benjamin Lay. But then John Woolman, in a much more gentle and uh, compassionate for the slave owner as well as the slave Woman took on the three great isms of our day, uh, racism, militarism, and consumerism. He dealt with this, uh, the feeling of wealth that he felt were the underpinnings for the slave trade. Here's a, a really interesting passage. This is just from his journal. My mind, through the power of truth, was in a good degree weaned from the desire of outward greatness, and I was learning to be content with real conveniences that are not costly, so that a way of life free from much entanglement appeared best for me, though the income might be small. I had several offers of business that appeared profitable, but I did not see my way clear to accept any of them, believing they would be attended with more outward care and cumber. I love that word, cumber. <laughs> Encumberments is what he's talking about. Than was required of me to engage in. So here's the passage. I saw that a humble man, he meant a person, a humble person, with the blessing of the Lord might live on a little, and that where the heart was set on greatness, success in business did not satisfy the craving, but that commonly with the increase of wealth, the desire of wealth increased. There was a care on my mind so to pass my time that nothing might hinder me from the most steady attention to the voice of the true shepherd. Hmm. <laughs> Could you help folks understand a little about Quakerism and you know the the, the friends? Because today, I mean, you've got folks that are on 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 one end, very evangelical, look look very much like a you know non denominational what church, all the way, all the way to folks that may or may not believe in Jesus. Um, right, right, right. Right now, you have this big spread. Did you back then in in these early? No, Here's an American not so much. In the 17th century, 1650s, 60s, and so on, there was this incredible explosion 
of uh, Quaker revival kind of thing. Uh, George Fox is often thought of as one of the key leaders, but there were other leaders too. And uh, there was a group uh, called the Valiant 60. I think it was actually 58 or something like that. <laughs> Uh, they were all great leaders, and that was during the period of Cromwell's reign in England, and they tried to make George Fox a captain in Cromwell's army, and he said that uh, he knew the life and power that took away the occasion for all wars, and that was an early statement of kind of a pacifist a position, although, you know, not clearly articulated until later, uh, a concern on many, many social fronts. Uh, and slavery was one of those issues that really began with Quakers. There were many other issues. The uh, people in prisons that were in mental institutions, mental health, all of those kinds of things. They were Orphans deep. Orphans the other. Right. All of that they were deeply involved in, and the sense of Christ as their teacher, their divine teacher who will guide them into all truth, was the idea. So that they didn't need a church or a steeple or a book or a key, because it would bind them forever. But it can't, said he, for <laughs> the church it will crumble, the steeple will fall but the truth will be shining at the end of it all. Well, anyway, so, <laughs> and that grew uh, and came over to the Americas. Most people would know the name William Penn, who was a leading Quaker guy. Pennsylvania, right? Pennsylvania. And of course, it's kind of fun. He had a military background, and so he carried a sword all the time. And he one time asked George Fox, can I keep my sword? Uh, Fox very wisely said to him, keep it as long as you can. And not long after that, he abandoned the wearing of a sword. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Just that kind of freedom of conscience. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So they became early leaders in the anti-slavery movement. But they first had to deal with slavery in their own midst because Quakers owned slaves in those early years. A strong emphasis upon treating slaves with compassion and so forth. But as time grew, and John Woman was part of this, they saw the institution itself as a great evil. And we think today, well, of course, but they didn't think that back in the 18th century. There were a lot of folks that would argue, like Christian folks would argue for it, right? That oh, somehow yeah. this was yeah. okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. And churches yeah. split. And I mean, this was a big It was a very big, big deal. deal. Very big deal. And the whole abolitionist movement, Quakers were early into that, the Underground Railroad, all of those kinds of things. So, uh, and John Woolman was right at the center of this. What, what is all this light within talk? Oh, <laughs> see, Fox talked about the light of Christ within a person that will lead them into all truth. Now, in time, though, that drifted away from 
a uh, Christocentric focus. Uh, different ones picked it up as just sort of a general uh, light of conscience or whatever. That's where you begin to get that drift of groups who would be uh, highly liberal theologically, rationalistic, and Enlightenment period, and so on. And uh, so you you have today huge divisions theologically. Uh, I was one time, this was years ago in the 60s, I was in a meeting that was gathered in St. Louis, and we had uh, all groups, all of them there, and one of the speakers that had shared, and then we got in these smaller groups. And uh, in the small group I was part of, they were talking about, well, the speaker guy said this, and the other one said, no, no, I think he said this, and no, he said this, and they were going back and forth at each other. <laughs> and uh, one person stood up and said, it was a great line, he said, uh, it may be depending on where you were sitting, understanding what he said, <laughs> which really everybody laughed and it helped us, you know, relax about it. And uh, But, you know, all these divisions are still here among Quakers today, but they weren't so much so uh, in the 18th century. And woman uh, was clearly Christian and and saw Christ as the true light, which enlightens every person coming into the world, as John one nine tells us. And the phrases like to hold someone in the light, right. Right. They meant into the light of Christ, into the light of truth, into the light of conscience. I mean, all those things were sort of gathered. But the idea of Christ as the true light, which radiates and lights, brings light to a situation. That's why that George Fox song, walk in the light wherever you may be. Walk in the light wherever you may be. In my old leather breeches and my shaggy, shaggy locks, I am walking in the glory of the light, said Fox. <laughs> Get a kick out of that. <laughs> I wish people could see your dance that, that accompanies it, that I'm privileged to witness here. <laughs> I've seen you dance to that song. It's a great song, the George Fox song. I, I it is looked a great it up song. the other day. It's a lot of fun. What, what are you holding there, Dad? <laughs> this is my doctoral dissertation that was on Quaker concern and race, race religion, race relations then and now. And I was comparing and contrasting. This is handwritten, right? Is this a handwritten dissertation? There was typewriters back in those days. Yeah. yeah. So, Fancy. Yeah. Did you type yeah. it yourself? Did you do? I did, actually. Yeah. Good. <laughs> a little carbon copy thing to make an extra copy? Yeah, that's true. Okay, okay, your dissertation got some for us. Talking about John Woolman, it's the Philadelphia yearly meeting sessions of 1758 that was the great watershed for friends on the slavery question. They'd been debating this for years, but... Uh, John Greenleaf Whittier, I think maybe you mentioned him. He said he, 
that this must ever be regarded as one of the most important religious convocations in the history of the Christian church. And there'd been back and forth, opposition as well as support for the anti-slavery cause. And John Woolman went there, resolved to see that issue to the end. And in those meetings, some friends suggested that restrictions should be placed on the future of slave buying, thus avoiding the touchy subject of present slave owning. Others said that due to the weightiness of the matter, a decision should be delayed. So Woolman sits through these, all these sessions, quiet, head bowed, tears in his eyes. Now, he gets up to speak finally, and here's what he says. My mind is led to consider the purity of the divine being and the justice of his judgment. And herein, my soul is covered with awfulness. Many slaves on this continent are oppressed, and their cries have entered into the ears of the Most High. Such are the purity and certainty of his judgments that he cannot be partial in our favor. In infinite love and goodness, he has opened our understandings from time to time to another concerning our duty towards this people, and it is not a time for delay. Should we now be sensible of what he requires of us, and through a respect to some private interest of some persons, or through a regard to some friendships which do not stand upon an immutable foundation, neglect to do our duty in firmness and constancy, still waiting for some extraordinary means to bring about their deliverance, God may by terrible things in righteousness answer us in this matter. So that statement, the yearly meeting responds to it without spoken dissent to remove slavery from their midst. Now, at that meeting, they appoint woman and a few others to go to every person in the yearly meeting that owns slaves to resolve this issue. It takes 20 years for all of that to happen. But uh, the fact that Philadelphia yearly meeting does it, that's the major, the biggest, the most important. Well, that filters down to all the other yearly meetings. And there are all kinds of issues that they had to uh, deal with. But the upshot of that was that uh, by the time we had the uh, Declaration of Independence, 1776, all Quakers had released all slaves. And here's the interesting thing. They also felt that it required of them to pay their slaves for their years of service, their years of enslavement. And uh, so they, wow. and for many, yeah, back pay. And many of them, it meant financial bankruptcy for them. And for those who lived in the South, it also meant migration uh, because they couldn't compete with slow, Southern slave plantations. So they would migrate to Indiana and other places. It's a wonderful story of folks doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 
um, people reading the book, what, what would you hope for them to take away from it? Well, first, I hope that they will see that the issues that woman faced were major social issues. And then they have to translate that into today. Uh, what, what are the issues today that we should deal with? I hope that they can catch a sense of the tenderness, the gentleness of spirit in woman, but also his firmness on I mean, these were some major issues. There's some passages that I could read about uh, when, you know, some people took offense at the things he did. Let me just read this one. Mm, please. Having at times perceived a shyness in some friends of considerable note toward me. Let me just, let me just pause. Friends meaning Quaker. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. The term, yeah. So, some Quakers. And that they they had a shyness, as he puts it, toward me. In other words, they didn't like him. They were mad at him. <laughs> I found an engagement in gospel love to pay a visit to one of them. And as I dwelt under the exercise, I felt a resignedness in my mind to go and tell him privately that I had a desire to have an opportunity with him alone. To this proposal, he readily agreed and then in the fear of the Lord, things relating to that shyness were searched to the bottom. And we had a large conference, he means a large talk, which I believe was of use to both of us. And I am thankful that way was opened for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's John Woolman. The long work to invest in these conversations. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Thank you for, yeah, thank you for sharing your friend with us today. Yeah, indeed. Appreciate I it. hope it's helpful to people. And that was Richard Foster talking about the Journal of John Woolman. I invite you to continue to explore the life and work of John Woolman in the Renovare Book Club. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. Podcast made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing your questions or thoughts. Email at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morcon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.